Welcome to the Progress City Radio Hour. On this, our first podcast, we'll be taking part one of a trip around Disneyland. We'll also look at Alien Encounter, the Sherman Brothers Meet the World, and much more. So stay tuned. The Progress City Radio Hour is about to begin. Welcome to the first ever Progress City USA podcast. My name is Beacon Joe, or real name Jeff. I haven't been posting on the blog very much lately, but I'm joined by Michael, who has taken the reins. Hey, I've taken the reins. Well, it was Hello, it was everyone. yours to begin with. I just well, yeah, but we're uh, it's our brainchild, yes. and he's had me sequestered here in the Progress City USA studios. Uh, trying to come up with this podcast for months. We're sorry it took so long uh, to come Mostly out. Mostly my fault. <laughs> so I'll, I'll take the blame on that one. Well, we hope you enjoy this first podcast, and there are more to come, and they will be uh, sooner than you know a yearly or quarterly basis, hopefully. Yes. Hopefully very, very soon. I'd like to get this recurring. I believe there are some features here on this uh, first podcast that will repeat almost every podcast. And uh, our main feature today is a uh, part one of a discussion of our first trip to Disneyland, which happened in September for the D23 convention. It's been a while. It has. But uh, we're basically uh, comparing and contrasting it to Walt Disney World's Magic Kingdom and, and providing some first impressions. This is for uh, Fox Passport to Dreams, who harassed me at the time for not uh, doing enough compare and contrast my ideas, so... We're finally talking about it, only however many months after. Yeah. We also uh, have a Walt Disney World feature. Uh, we plan to have that every podcast because it is our home park. Uh, Michael did that. You want to tell us what it's about? Sure. We're talking today. Today we're talking about Alien Encounter. And not the Alien Encounter you know or remember or have heard of. This is the original Alien Encounter before... Michael Eisner retold it, the original. We have audio of the original pre-show to that, featuring the late, great Phil Hartman in a much more wacky pre-show than you might remember. Sounds good. I'll also be doing a song feature on a particular song that I enjoy in the Disney canon. Uh, the first one of those is going to be a demo of the Sherman Brothers' Meet the World, which is an attraction that recently, or quasi-recently, closed at Tokyo Disneyland. It was originally intended for Epcot Center as well. And the Japan Pavilion never got built. Oh, and it's a sad one, too, because it's a great song. And 
it's not my segment, but allow me to say that this, I believe, I truly believe, is the most addictive stick-in-your-brain song the Sherman Brothers ever wrote. Way more than even It's a Small World, as much as people rag on that. This song will get in your brain, and it will never leave. It's Yes. It's a great... <laughs> I love this song. They're definitely at the uh, height of their power at this point. And uh, they've written Great Big Beautiful Tomorrow, Now is the Time, and Small World. And it kind of mm-hmm. combines all three stylistically. It's well, and song. probably when they're uh, writing all their songs for Epcot and Indeed. you know all those great songs. Those are enjoyable as well. We'll end up the podcast with an editorial segment called Hard Facts. Again, Mike. Hard Facts. That, that's your that's, that's your baby. I'm gonna do the sort of DIY. I need to get like an anvil or something to like clang as we hard facts. <laughs> but yeah, hard facts is where we stick it to the man and lay down the law and speak truth to power and other things. And today we're gonna be talking about transportation. Uh, we hope you enjoy this first podcast, and we will remind you this throughout the podcast. But if you have any suggestions, feedback, questions, we will get to the mailbag in a, in a later podcast. Um, Ooh, if you have, mailbag. Yeah, indeed. It's starting to stack up. But uh, if you have any feedback, let us know at podcast at progresscityusa.com. And, uh, you know, again, to thank all our readers, readership has gone way up this year. And for all of you people who check in, who drop by, we very much appreciate it. And everything's way more enjoyable when you, you know, chime in and we get a good discussion going. So thanks to everyone for reading. And thanks for listening. We hope you enjoy this. We're going to start off with a look at the headlines. Now it's time for the news and headlines from around the Disney World. Uh, Walt Disney World held a press event last week for their, what they're calling their Summer Night Tastic, which is their retort to the Wizarding World of Harry Potter, which is opening at Universal. And of course, the centerpiece for this is the Main Street Electrical Parade is returning to the Magic Kingdom. Wait, I thought it was glowing away forever in 1999. It apparently did not glow away forever. And especially since it had already de-glowed away forever in the first part of this decade. So I, I guess a lot of people are very excited, but I was never of the opinion that it would be gone forever because it had already come back once. That makes sense. Personally, yeah. I feel like that parade, uh, as much as it's, uh, it's very nostalgic for me, I, I think it belongs at Disneyland. Put it in Disneyland Park. Come on. Yeah, I know. We got our Spectrum Magic. We've got... any. Obviously, as old school, I love Main Street Electrical Parade, but I also love Spectre Magic. And, I mean, the point is, when you're trying to counter this Harry Potter thing to bust out the 30-year-old parade, and the Twilight Zone Tower of Terror is getting a new drop sequence. (gasps) Wow. Which should have happened anyway. Uh, Main Street Electrical Parade is going to be led off by Tinkerbell instead of the Blue Fairy. 
Also going to have new Pinocchio and Snow White floats. Uh, Twilight Zone, as I said, going to have a new drop sequence. Uh, the Magic Kingdom will be getting a new fireworks display, and that's actually something that I am excited about. Yes. Uh, we'd probably lose a great percentage of our listeners if I expounded at length about how much I hate wishes. Don't you love all the monologues, though? I love it because it's 45 minutes of Jiminy Cricket talking and clips from Hercules. Um, also, uh, Sounds of Summer, concert series at Epcot, and extended evening hours at the Animal Kingdom. Mm. <laughs> Man, this is night-tastic. So it is night-tastic. You don't get Rivers of Light, but you can watch Tough to Be a Bug as long as you want. More exciting is uh, new dining editions coming to Epcot in the Italy Pavilion. Of course, they're going to have a Neapolitan pizzeria opening in time in the fall for the Food and Wine Festival. Uh, the same group that runs Tutto Italia, the restaurant there, is going to build a 300-seat pizzeria, uh, 14,000 square feet with indoor and outdoor dining. Yeah, if you haven't seen the construction photos of this, it looks like it's going to be huge. Yeah, it's going to be enormous, which, you know, it's good to have an addition to the pavilion, even if it's not the ride. Any addition. Or the, the Roman ruins. I don't want the Roman ruins. Anyway, uh, more exciting also at Mexico in World Showcase. The Cantina de San Angel is expanding and is going to get a 400-seat uh, expansion there on the lagoon. That's great, because that place, I feel like, has been a struggle, and it's been a nightmare as far as people are concerned. Yeah, it's it's in the way, and they're moving it further out, allowing better guest flow. Also, as as the press releases kind of say, al fresco seating for lunch. Mm. And a good view of Illuminations, Reflections, Earth. That'll be exciting. That place was pretty rough. Always love the churros, though. Uh, oh, well, yeah. If you... Yeah. <laughs> um, all sorts of things happening at Walt Disney World. Uh, ESPN Wild World of Sports, yeah, uh, or not. Uh, downtown Disney, West Side. <laughs> Henry Rollins is playing the House of Blues on my birthday. Oh, those Disney nights. Oh, those Disney nights indeed. Uh, also, uh, Luxury Pet Resort coming to Walt Disney World. If I'm not mistaken, that's on the footprint of Raging Cajun Lagoon. <laughs> I believe it's... <laughs> or where the swamp ride was supposed to yes. be. Raging Cape. Uh, shout out to our friends on the West Coast at Disneyland. Uh, Captain EO's coming back sometime this month, which is rapidly running out. Captain EO, yay or nay, what do you say? Uh, maybe. It's worth it to get Honey, I Shrunk the Audience out of there. I concur. I say yay for short term, no for long term. Give us something new, and I, d I don't think it will have aged well. Anyway, also over at California Adventure, we've got wonderful World of Color testing, which looks awesome. Looks amazing. Yeah, and our poor friends in Paris are getting Toy Story Playland. But that's for now. See you soon. lovers of Disney music, we wanted to make sure that we featured some songs uh, 
every podcast, and one in particular, each podcast, wanted to be the feature song and do a little backstory on it. I wanted to start off in our first podcast with one of my favorites and one of my favorite recordings. It's a song called Meet the World. It's the theme song for the attraction of the same name, and it's written, of course, by the Sherman Brothers, Richard and Robert. Um, it's kind of at a neat point in history when they have done um, a lot of attraction work. They did the Enchanted Tiki Room. They did two Carousel of Progress themes, and of course, it's a small world. And it's kind of a fusion between the the latter two, uh, the different Carousel's Progresses, and uh, it's a small world. A neat little song. Um, the attraction was initially planned for both Tokyo Disneyland and the Japan Pavilion at Epcot. It only, unfortunately, opened at the uh, Tokyo Disneyland. Um, I'll read a little background about it. Meet the World was an attraction at Tomorrowland and Tokyo Disneyland from 1983 till 2002. It was a show which explored the history of Japan over the course of 19 minutes, focusing specifically on the history of Japan's engagement with the outside world. The show featured an animated crane explaining Japanese history to a young boy and girl from Yokohama. The show featured dialogue between a number of audio animatronic figures and a movie screen in the background. Park guides and maps said, Explore Japan's heritage in an incredible time travel adventure. The show was presented in a rotating theater similar to Carousel of Progress at Walt Disney World and previously at Disneyland. I also found an interview with Richard Sherman, the ever gregarious. Richard Sherman on a website called mouseclubhouse.com where he kind of talks about coming up with that song. He says, and I quote, It was an assignment. It was in the 80s, I think. They wanted to have a theme song, much like the feeling that we had in Small World, but Japanese-flavored song that would tell the story of how Japan mythically arose out of the sea. That's the legend that they have. But to tell the story was a great study in history for us. We really had to bone up on what it was all about. And then we set it to music, and it became the song Meet the World. Quote, Born of the Great Mother Sea, the outside world was a dark mystery. The trick was we said meet the world with love. It was just the idea that they went forth and they made friends, and we left World War II out of it. Interviewer, that's true, isn't it? Richard Sherman, you're supposed to laugh uproariously at that, but you're too young to realize how ironic that line is. They blew up our entire fleet in Pearl Harbor. We left it out. A long time we thought, how do you handle the war? We said we're just going into the black, and we'd come up after the war. We never mentioned it. This uh, particular recording is a demo session, um, and I think it's just really neat that, uh, like now is the time in Great Big Beautiful Tomorrow and even Small World, it adapts, and it gets a lot of story in there, which the Sherman Brothers are fantastic at. So I hope you enjoy it. I hope you uh, enjoy the charm of Richard Sherman's delivery. We uh, had the pleasure of hearing him perform live at D23, and it was a lot of fun to hear his interpretations of the song. Without further ado, the demo version of Meet the World. Born of the great mother sea, the outside world was a dark mystery. We lived on our islands alone, 
Till our first brave sailors explored the unknown, reaching out friendly hands to meet the world around us, friendly people of Japan. We meet the world with love. We meet the world with love. We meet the world with love, reaching out friendly hands. We meet the world with love. Japan of today leads the way. Dynamic dreams and great hopes on display. And each year our efforts increase. Touching all the world over with friendship and peace. Reaching out friendly hands to meet the world around us, friendly people of Japan. We meet the world with love. We meet the world with love. We meet the world with love. Reaching out friendly hands. We meet the world with love. Hi everyone, this is Michael again. One of the first things that we wanted to do when we started this podcast was to have a recurring feature about the history of Walt Disney World, because it is our home park, so to speak, and where we spent most of our time. And there are a lot of, I don't know, untold stories, I suppose, from the history of the resort. As always, it would be greatly helpful if there's anything you'd like to hear us discuss or talk about, please let us know at podcast at progresscityusa.com. Or if you have anything interesting that you'd like to share, again, podcast at progresscityusa.com. And then everyone wins. For the podcast, I thought that it would be better than just writing a story and reading it out, a bunch of facts or things, to come up with something audio-related that may be a little bit of an obscurity or a little bit of something that reveals something about the past of the parks. And that would be more interesting than me just reading a story that I would otherwise post on the blog. So for this inaugural history feature about Walt Disney World, we're going to talk about Alien Encounter. And that may be a little counterintuitive at first for those of you who know me, but the reason shall present itself soon enough. Now, Alien Encounter, as you may remember, was part of Tomorrowland's New Tomorrowland, which came around in 1994, even though Alien Encounter really didn't open to the public until 1995. And this was an attraction that had replaced the Mission to Mars there in that theater, which today is Stitch's Great Escape. Now, if you have survived Stitch's Great Escape, you will have seen a lot of the infrastructure that was already there from Alien Encounter. Uh, the same layout, 
same general idea of the attraction, but a very different tone. Alien Encounter was much more serious and scary, and it was the outgrowth of Michael Eisner's push after he arrived at Disney in 1984 to appeal to teenagers, whatever that even means, to become more hip and edgy and, you know, thrills for the kids, kicks, because kid lo kids love the, love the kicks. They're in it for the kicks. And basically, this pretty much amounted to Eisner chasing the wishes of his own teenage son. And, you know, whatever he thought that the kids the kids these days like. So it was intended to be much more thrilling, and it was originally intended to feature the alien from the 1979 Ridley Scott film Alien, and uh, the sequel by James Cameron a few years later. And this would have been much more scary, as you might imagine, and feature a lot of the same ideas that we eventually saw in Alien Encounter, just with this huge xenomorph creature going around killing people <laughs> that were there to be subjected to this test by the evil corporation. So a lot of people thought that maybe that wasn't appropriate for a Disney park. I, as a fan of those movies, would have thought it was awesome. However, uh, the idea was created to make it more family-friendly, still scary, but not terrifying, and to bring in this sort of wackier idea of excess tech. Now, through the development process, a lot of things changed. And, you know, if you hear the stories of the development of the attraction, oh, people didn't think it was scary enough, so they made it more scary. Or they thought it was too scary, and they made it less scary. And the end result of all this fiddling was that the storyline was really muddled a lot. And that's because with the idea of the alien from the film that everyone knows, you didn't have to spend a lot of time telling people what was going on. They know the alien, they know what it does, they know that's bad, and that's really all you need to know. With this new storyline, we get excess tech, and we get Chairman Clinch, and we get the other characters all in there, and everyone has to explain what they're doing, and why, and then what's happening. And so that led to eventually, as you saw with the attraction, those of us who wrote it, the, the biggest problem, I think, with the attraction was that it was so heavy on exposition and plot that they were just having to cram dialogue in there to explain what was going on, which just made a mess of the whole thing. Now, Alien Encounter opened at Walt Disney World on December 16th, 1994 for previews. Now, this attraction was originally meant for... Disneyland for Tomorrowland 2055, which was going to be the shiny new Tomorrowland out there. But when Eisner started to get cold feet after Euro Disney and after all his little problems in the early 90s, Tomorrowland 2055 got delayed, then it got scaled back. And so Alien Encounter, which had originally been announced for Disneyland to replace its mission to Mars, got moved to Walt Disney World. And it was still supposed to be franchised out to the other parks later, but after all the problems that it had, eventually everyone, I think, probably just got tired of it and didn't want to mess around with it anymore. Those of us who were around at the time will remember that this was a heavily hyped attraction. There was lots of publicity. 
And so after it opened for previews in December of 94, it was closed in January of 95 for retooling. But without really the internet to tell us what was going on, we didn't really know at the time what was happening or why. And what had happened, as, as it was sort of rumored at the time, was that Michael Eisner had seen the previews and decided it wasn't scary enough, that it needed some more thrills put in. And while that actually did happen, I believe, the prevailing stories about it were that they needed to add things to make the ride make more sense as a narrative, to add little bits of exposition because it was really just sort of a random <laughs> random things happening while you were in this theater. So they cleared it up, added a few more visual effects so you'd kind of better know what was happening around you. And after this period of what was actually a pretty lengthy period of retooling, the ride opened officially in uh, June of 1995, on June 20th, specifically. And that was the attraction that we came to know. And, you know, it had a sort of tortured experience after that, because it was a scary attraction. It was not for the whole family. And no matter how many signs you put up saying that, people aren't going to read them. And then they're going to complain that something was scary to their kids, even though they got several warnings that this was a very scary attraction. Now, the prime difference between the preview version of Alien Encounter and the version that we eventually got to know after it had been retooled was the pre-show. The pre-show was always a very prominent part of the attraction, even before the changes. And... It was really the tone of that pre-show that changed. The pre-show before, it, the pre-show that opened in the previews was more lighthearted and more kind of comedic. And it was thought that that tone really clashed with the show that came after. Because you'd have this kind of affable pre-show and then you'd go in and have this really scary, dark attraction. And so, while it was closed, the tone of the pre-show was completely changed, a completely new voiceover was recorded, and so the pre-show that we all come to know with Sir, and voiced by Tim Curry, that great lugubrious voiceover work, better fit the attraction that came to come. It created the sense of unease. It was really funny. It was actually, I think, funnier than the original narration, but it was creepy and it gave you that unease going into the attraction that seemed to better fit the tone welcome weary travelers to the great big universe of xs you may call me sir that is s-i-r which stands for simulated intelligence robotics what do you want skippy now if you were around at the time you might remember that this portion of Disney history was really heavy on the celebrities. The attractions, the films, the narrations, they'd try and cram in as many celebrities as they could because, again, the hip and the edgy were always desired. And so we saw that with this attraction. Of course, Chairman Clinch is actor Jeffrey Jones, who you'll know from a lot of things that he's been in. Actor Kevin Pollack and uh, actress Kathy Najimy were both in the film. 
the pre-show, the very first pre-show with uh, the alien lady that comes out and tells you about XS Tech. That's Tyra Banks under all that alien gear. And then in the pre-show. Now, as I mentioned, the pre-show that we came to know was the very creepy uh, Tim Curry. But the original pre-show has was recorded by the comedic legend. Uh, I'll go out on a limb and say legend from Saturday Night Live. And then he was also on news radio, uh, Phil Hartman, who is sadly no longer with us. But uh, Phil Hartman, who did a lot of great voiceover work, did this sort of used car salesman kind of voiceover for Sir, S-I-R, who later became Tim Curry. And so that's what we're going to listen to today. This is a recording of the original pre-show to Alien Encounter by Phil Hartman. It is a live recording, so please forgive all the trappings that involve a live recording. But note that it is much more lighthearted than the later Tim Curry narration. It's also, I think, it's uh, despite Phil Hartman being a hilarious guy, it's, it's not as funny as the Tim Curry narration was. I was a huge fan of that narration, and actually, even though there are a lot of people who really miss Alien Encounter Attraction, I don't really care so much, but I do miss that pre-show because I thought that was a really great pre-show. But here we have from what I assume to be December or early January of 1994, the original pre-show to Alien Encounter by Phil Hartman. Enjoy. Transportation. Teleportation. 
This is the fully operational XS Series 1000, the first in a complete line of personal and commercial teleportation systems capable of sending solid matter and biological life from one place to another instantly. See for yourself the wonders of XS teleportation. Phase one of the process has begun. Disintegration into the molecular components. A painless procedure, I assure you. And now the second phase. The molecules are beamed to the receiving chamber, where atom by atom we reconstruct the carefree traveler. This phase is especially delicate, but the system is carefully monitored to guarantee clear reception. It seems a slight magnetic anomaly has disturbed the transmission. Let me just check here. Accident, adversity, anomaly. Ah, not to worry. I simply boost the power to compensate. Hmm, perhaps another boost. Beacon Joe. Our feature for today on our first podcast is going to be a comparison and contrast between Disneyland and Walt Disney World. We uh, attended Disneyland for the first time uh, over a month ago for the D23 Expo. Got to spend a couple of days in the parks and uh, most noteworthy Disneyland proper. I'm joined here with Michael and um, where to begin? Uh, I think we should begin probably with our, our journey into the park was a little bit... It was more adventurous than uh, expected. Yes. Um, I was impressed to see that the the placemaking, as it were, as they call it, the landscaping was different, definitely set some kind of tone that you were going somewhere else. It was, you know, I was afraid Disneyland was just going to be 
you know, kind of the parking lot effect, of course, doesn't have that anymore. That's true. The, uh, the resort plan from the 90s, that was pretty much the only thing that actually came out as they planned. You see the renderings from back in the day of the, you know, the palm tree, the palm lined boulevards. And that's uh, pretty much the only thing that came off as planned. So it, was, right. it, it looks great going down through the area. No West Cop, but bonus points for the palm trees. No, yeah. Well, they had to block uh, California Adventure. When the first sign, exciting um, sign of Disneyland you see is the Malibuomer sticking up into mm. the beautiful Southern California skies. That's, that's a deal breaker. Right. So we, we walked down by the... Uh, Paradise Pier Hotel in the Grand Californian. Uh, walked underneath downtown Disney. We yeah. did not know that. Didn't know where we were going. I knew where Disneyland was. Knew where the hotels were, California Adventure. But you expect to just walk up there and be Disneyland and not yeah. be going under things. Yeah, we uh, ended up on a on some kind of cast member path going in through a <laughs> cast member exit. It was Unmarked very walking trail. <laughs> And then entered, you know, nowhere did we go where we were not supposed to be. But by the time we finally found an entrance to downtown Disney, the door we entered through, or the gate we entered through, uh, was cast members only on the other side. So I don't know how... It was really strange. I mean, it was strange to be in a Disney environment where you had no idea where you were going. That hadn't happened in a long time. Right. Um, It was definitely very strange, obviously, not to have the Seven Seas Lagoon and... You know, while Disney World, everything seems to be, and we'll talk about this more as we go along, everything is very, you know, there's there's the weenie effect where you see things far off and you develop the expectation and then you're there and, you know, everything's built up, like the monorail from the TTC, for instance. But Disneyland, you don't really have the, the blessing of size or, you know. No, it's very, you don't know that where you are until you're <laughs> right. right up on it. So, yeah, we're, we're plopped down in downtown Disney and, and before we know it, we're in the, uh, Esplanade, as I believe they call it, there. <laughs> and that, guys, downtown Disney, really? Yeah, it's pretty, pretty it's, extreme. <laughs> it's very loud music. I, I, know. I, I never thought I'd be the, well. I, very incongruous, and you have the uh, Grand Californian kind of spilling over uh, over into it. And you know, if I had paid hundreds and hundreds of dollars a night for the room that overlooks Forever 21, <laughs> I would probably not be happy but uh it was very you know it's like being at the village at disney world but then Mm -hmm. all of a sudden you're at disneyland and there's a park right there there are two parks right there. yeah the other park's entry was very uh impressive no i'm glad we got to see it before the um the grand wipe occurs because it was something Something so, to see. Yeah, so we had this cir- circuitous journey uh, there. I guess expectation was building in one way or the other. It was a very confused expectation. But then we were there in front of the train station looking just as it should, looking like it did in all the Disneyland specials we used to watch. And then the excitement really began to build for me. Yeah, and it, well, it was shocking because you... You know, we grew up watching these things, watching, uh, you know, seeing the pictures of Disneyland from the 50s and the 60s. And you just think of it as something that's not really there. It's, you know, this thing from the past and what was there. And you forget it's it's still right there. And, you know, after going through the uh, 
downtown Disney and there's California Adventure and it's all very sort of crammed in there. And then boom, you're there and the train station that everyone knows and it's Disneyland. You expect EJ Peeker to drive up in a Volkswagen Beetle. I know. At any point. I know. Uh, <laughs> yeah, that's a deep cut. Anyway. Uh, <laughs> Who's EJ Peeker? Yeah, that was a deep cut even in the Haunted Mansion special. I know, we it, contemporaneously. We had had a long discussion of how we were going to enter in. I mean, obviously you have to enter in through the main gate, but we were discussing whether or not to do Main Street, go down Main Street, take the train around. We ended up deciding to, to take the train Gotta around. Got to take the train around because, you know, one of our favorite attractions from Florida, riding it a thousand times, but also you know, very Walt significant. That's... Uh, being a huge Disney fan your entire life, but never having been to Disneyland, when you actually go, everything takes on like a near religious significance. Right. It's like we're here. And, you know, usually if you had a Six Flags, you don't like mull over what would be the right way to go <laughs> right. to Six Flags. But, yeah. you know, do we walk down the middle of Main Street, take the train? Had to take the train. And, and that's what we would do at the Magic Kingdom, by the way, I think, you know. Yeah, take the yeah. train anyway. You got to take the train. I'm but, glad we did. It ended up being a yeah one of my favorite things in the park. We did it several times. Yeah, and immediately you get the sense of the difference in scale mm-hmm. because the trains are such a smaller scale because you're sitting sideways instead of forward facing, which is odd. To a, a the Disney stops World are Earth. so much closer together too. The stops you get to uh, New Orleans Square before before you even know it. But I one of the things we talked about a lot was the scale, and like I said before, it's the sort of stereotypical reaction of a first-time Disneyland person who's always been on the East Coast at Disney World, and, you know, you think, oh, everything's so small, but then you get there, and that's all you can think, is everything is so small, and then by, like, the second day, you get used to it, and I keep thinking if I went to, you know, the Magic Kingdom now in Florida, it would blow my mind, but... Yeah, I mean, the castle, of course, is a lot so much smaller. We knew that going in. It was just completely shocking looking at it on Main Street. But on the second day, you know, you get used to it, especially up at, up against it at night. It feels big, you know. It seems yeah, a lot bigger it, than it, it really is. does. And, uh, you know, again, that's the sort of the artistry of Imagineering. Mm-hmm. But looking at it from the end of the street at Disney World, you're used to this sort of grand uh, Main Street funneling you down to provide this sort of vista of this huge castle. And at Disneyland, it's just like looking down a shoebox. And there's this little castle down at the end. And you have those tall, tall trees back there because they're so old. And it's it's shocking at first. And then you get to the hub, and you're also shocked because everything's so close. Mm-hmm. That was a continual shock as we went through Disneyland of how close everything was, whether it's you know, from from building to building or even inside the attractions, seeing how close the show was to the vehicles. I mean, right, size right. definitely plays such a big role there. Well, and in some ways beneficial, in some ways not. True. I mean, it gives that sense of, I, I've said that Tony, Tony Baxter said this many, many times uh, during D23, is that, you know, when asked to pick his favorite of the kingdoms, he says, you know, uh, Disneyland's the most charming, Disney World is the most... Uh, I think magnificent, spectacular. spectacular that's it. And uh, Disneyland Paris is the most beautiful. And uh, it's because of that size. I mm-hmm. mean, when you look, you have Thunder Mountain, 
smushed up against the rear of Fantasyland. Right. And inside the rides, like you said, in those dark rides, especially in Fantasyland, they're very long rides, but everything is right up in your face. And, I mean, you can reach out and touch anything. Right. Not, not that we did, obviously, but, I mean, everything is right uh, these tiny little rooms and you know you go through 10 of them so uh, yeah on the other hand they do some amazing you know this is not just a slight i mean I, I no not at all uh, it's a very different experience and right and i was impressed to see you know you know that uh part of the reason that walt disney world is the way it is is because disneyland got crowded so early by the hotels and whatnot denny's and such but um, yes. I was impressed with going back to the railroad about how huge the berms were, how when you were up in Splash Mountain, for instance, you couldn't really see anything specific outside of the park. They did a really good job of camouflaging within that small space. And you can't really see much of a, you know, most of the, the only thing you can see from land to land in general is the Matterhorn. And that kind of fits into every backdrop conceivable. And that is, especially you mentioned Splash Mountain over there in Critter Country, where you are right against the edge of the park, but you can't see anything. And it's a really masterful job of doing that. And, uh, you know, again, a tribute and something that a lot of the other parks lack, I think, is the benefit of that berm. California Adventure, obviously. Um, But And Epcot. And and at Mowell and Studios and, you know. But... um, Another thing in with that of utilizing space, I was shocked at how much free space there is. Because you think of it as being a fully built out park, but you have that huge area that was the um, mine train, right? which was supposed to be Discovery Bay. And even throughout the park, there are these little parcels of space that, uh, you know, there's there's room for more. Right. Big Thunder Ranch area was, was a lot of room. Uh, the whole area around the rivers of America, I get really interested in that at Magic Kingdom, even about what they could do to expand around there. Of course, that was Baxter's plot for Discovery Bay that never got built right. at one point. Well, and in the Magic Kingdom, we should have Thunder Mesa as well. So. Oh, let's not even talk about Thunder Mesa. It makes me upset. <laughs> well, uh, let's talk a little more about the train going around because, you know, we said before you blink, you're in New Orleans Square. Mm-hmm. There's a fantasy land slash toontown station i was just going to call that the fantasy land station yeah well, just because yeah, i refuse yeah. to admit that toontown exists except for the cartoons man we're on that later and uh then there's the tomorrowland station which we don't have in florida and then there is the <laughs> coup de gras which is one of the you know it's funny you think of what are the things i'm most excited about seeing when i'm there and uh, this was one of them, and uh, one of the reasons to ride the train, the Grand Canyon Diorama Primeval World. Yeah, and I've been looking forward to going that as well for a long time, and it's one of those things that there are certain things that you have a kind of, you know, like expectation, expectation, and it, it, some disappoint, and some exceed. That definitely exceeded in a strange way. I it's mean, brilliant. I, it's it's. There's no reason why it should be there, but it somehow has survived, and it's brilliant. Yes. And going through on the train, the kids were freaking out. The yeah. kids, lo- <laughs> the kids loved it. I loved it. Yeah, it had a lot of you know. This is the pre uh, you know Eisner era story and an attraction, which are more gags, as Walt used to call them. Uh, yeah. There are so many gags in there that that Bits I, of I think get the kids interested you know 
well, kids and it's of any age. So there's that doesn't dinosaurs, but even there's like little situations going on in the Grand Canyon, even with the <laughs> yeah. stuffed animals, which I couldn't believe. I, couldn't I had no idea amazing. that that's. I thought they were animatronics. I like that they're stuffed. It made me. It made me the laugh. The little family of stuffed skunks. For those of you who haven't seen this. You go essentially through a long tunnel on the train, and since you're facing all one way to the right of the train, there is a long diorama of the Grand Canyon with stuffed animals at at different intervals, little families of different animals, and it's playing the Grand Canyon suite over the audio. And uh, then you go into the primeval world, and this was taken from the uh, 64-65 World's Fair. Magic Skyway. The Magic Skyway. And it's pretty much equivalent to scenes from Universe of Energy, Mm -hmm. which many of you know. Let's have the exact same scene. And, uh, yeah. And so you get the Grand Canyon, then you've got some dinosaurs, and then you're at Main Street Station. Yeah, And the music, uh, I will mention, is wonderful. They play the Grand Canyon Suite. Who is that by? You, you knew this Oh, Frederick Grofa, I yeah. think. Great piece of music. They're playing that through the Grand Canyon, and, and I think that they're playing the theme to Mysterious Island in the I, That is what I've heard, that it's the soundtrack to... Uh, the uh, mysterious island, and I'm not sure at the moment who composed that. It's wonderful. It, yeah, it's definitely nice. Anyway, uh, yeah, it's it's amazing. It's funny. It's kind of old and outdated in a great way. But so uh, doing so low tech, but so impressive. The little visual effects they use in the primeval world. I keep trying not to say primeval world because yes. it's different. And again, another thing maybe. To another thing to discuss on another day. But, you know, these really analog, lo-fi effects, and they're just great. Mm-hmm. It's fantastic. Yeah, so we get back to Main Street. Now we're going to walk down Main Street. Main Street obviously is a lot smaller in Disneyland, as we've said uh the trees are huge. The colors were different, we noticed. Early. I know, and you, you were the one that pointed this out at first, and it is very odd. It's a, it's a much different color palette than in Florida. Yeah, there's some, some purples, some blues, that kind of stuff going on. Um, really, really neat. Uh, I don't know. I mean, obviously, it was great to see Center Street again. I Center do. Street, yeah, and to go in this cinema, and there, it, mm. it was old Main Street. It was just like uh, Disney World's used to be. Yeah, the Main Street Cinema, the Penny Arcade is still there, which is you know proof that they could have left the Penny Arcade, by the way, back at uh, the Magic Kingdom because it is a retail space. They just happen to have, yeah, you know, basically the same amount of Penny Arcade stuff that they've moved to the train station now. But they were there, and it was working, and people were shopping around it. So right, and looking at the looking at the things, it's you know you have to try, and yeah. they they tried, and it's great to see it all still there. Center Street, like you said, is still mm-hmm. there. Love me some Center Street. Uh, yeah, and it was neat to see that the restaurant was in Center Street, the Carnation Gardens. Unfortunately, we didn't get to eat there this time. Hopefully, next time. I know there lo- there was lots of restaurant angst because things tend to close. Was very early. very early. We did not know. But uh, one, another, one more thing about Main Street that uh, it was really neat to see that their their stores were still separated. I don't know how much or remember how much the Magic Kingdoms used to be separated, but they you know had walls between and you could wander in and out. And uh, they had like a little music store, which is really cool with yes. all the CDs. They had a you know Art of Disney store basically. Um, really neat kind of 
extra layer of detail, which, you know, I am also a pragmatist. I used to work on Main Street. I know that traffic on Main Street kind of dictates that those walls, if they were there ever, probably needed to be torn down. But it was neat to see the older version. Right, which uh, it just feels better. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it does. The way it should be. It doesn't be. feel like a mall. No, no, not at all. Our first stop, uh, after we reached the plaza and looked around the hub and realized that there were more than one plaza establishment, which was a source of confusion from watching these Very old confusing. Disney things. Uh, and the Disneylanders will get mad, but I didn't, you know, you always hear about the plaza in Gardens Pavilion. You think it's kind of the same, you know, the thing that John Hinch designed. And the thing that's basically where the Crystal Palace is at Magic Kingdom. Right, but... Then no, three corners, uh, three corners of the hub are and Pixie Hollow is the establishments, and then they have Pixie Hollow, which was nice. Anyway, anyway, uh, our first stop was the Enchanted Walt Disney's Enchanted, Enchanted Tiki, Tiki Room, um, which we couldn't both couldn't wait to see because we love the original yeah. version. We miss it. It was my number one destination heading out there to uh, see the unsullied and unmolested Tiki Room, and it was. And it was amazing. Uh, start with the Tiki Garden, which we uh, have listened to that pre-show for a long time. <laughs> Hence your former handle, Tangaroa. I am Tangaroa. Going there, grabbing a Dole Whip inside the queue, yes. or the waiting area, should I say. Um, and looking around in, in that pre-show was amazing. Both both parts of the pre-show. The Flavors of Hawaii video by Dole is amazing. I did not know that was there. I I can't believe it still is there. I had known about it, but had not obviously experienced it. And when they did the big restoration a few years ago, they came through and fixed everything up, put it on a nice new screen, probably digitized it or whatever. And it's something that you... I don't know how it survived all the years that it... I don't know how it made it through the 70s, because nothing good did. <laughs> well, about the 80s. but Or the 80s. Or the 90s. But somehow, it's still there. And now it's perfect. Yeah, and I think now it's here to stay. It looks like it has been restored. And it's such a, like, a snapshot of time. I mean, if any of you watch Mad Men, it looks like something they would come up with in yeah, TV show. Yeah, it's definitely... Sterling Cooper production. Hawaii was born of volcanic action millions of years ago. Still active today, these volcanoes produce the rich soil which supports Hawaii's lush vegetation. But, you know, you go in, you sit in the garden, you have the special uh, window, exclusive window for the Dole Whip stand, which is great. You can sit there, you watch the Tiki's Do Their Show, you watch the little movie. Uh, It's fantastic and it's all outdoors as so many things are at disneyland uh they probably couldn't get away with that in florida but yeah that that entire experience is sublime yeah to prove our uh, dork quotient i believe we watched that pre-show twice the first time before well you exactly it was like you want to watch that again yes um it was amazing to see you know this is the same through the whole Tiki Room attraction of like all this stuff is again analog, low tech, old stuff from the 1960s. All of it grabbed people's attention. Maybe not the flavors of Hawaii as much, but it yeah, needs people to stay. were too busy trying to uh, break over the rude people breaking yeah. over the turnstiles to get in. But as that was happening and people were you know doing their own thing. The uh, tiki's came on, and each one of them kind of has their own thing they do. Like you know, uh, Pele's head catches on fire, and one of them has a rainy head, and 
All this stuff happens, and it really grabbed people's attention. And by the end of it, people were really waiting to see, looking around to see what was going to come next. And right. when we got into the Tiki Room, everybody was singing. They went nuts. It was a packed it, show every time we went to see it. It was like way. some old promo video you'd see from back in the day of like people getting just totally like jazzed about you know some old vaudeville thing. But they were going absolutely nuts and all singing along. And I mean, it was like you said when. When we went in, it was packed. A couple of times we saw it, it was packed. Yeah, and it's the kind of thing that shows, you know, <clears throat> when Disney works. You know, Tony Baxter talked a lot about how even Walt would change stuff and take stuff out and put stuff in, and I understand that, but then there are also things that just work, and they still work, and they work better than their refreshments sometimes or their new <laughs> management, should we say. Exactly. Because I haven't been to that many packed tiki room shows in orlando lately no i haven't been to many tiki room shows in orlando I lately either. i sometimes but have to go in that room <laughs> i think you're right sometimes you get it right the first time and the tiki room is one of those so and uh, should i say after we went there going through the little stores in Adventureland, tons of tiki merchandise and like real high quality for adults artwork merchandise tableware, all sorts was of crazy amazing. things. Yeah, there was a lot of specific park merchandise, which was nice because I was afraid it was all going to be Disney parks. Yes. Here we are. Disney. Or Disneyland, just. No, but there Disneyland was a lot of resort. Like, really specific stuff, and that was neat. Um, and you know what? To all my friends in Disney marketing that are not listening to this podcast, I spent way too much money on Tiki Room stuff in the stores of Adventureland. And when was the last time I bought anything in the Magic Kingdom? Right. I have. I don't remember. Except for the exclusive It's a Small World merchandise, which I was disappointed with, by the way. That's I've true. I've become a big Small World. Anyway, we'll get to Small World. Yeah. Um, yeah. Adventureland in general, really cool land. Might have been my favorite land in the park. Adventureland was the biggest surprise for me because of how small it was, how big the trees were and how I mean it really did it was a lot different than Adventureland at Walt Disney World. Yes and again like you said so small it's small and windy and it surprises you when you get to the end of it but this is something we talked about is it's so different from what you think of as traditional Disney Imagineering Disney layout because you you know you're primed to think you know you've got the foreground you've got the weenie in the background You've got this whole sort of to pull you inward. But the second you enter Adventureland, the Tiki Room's immediately to your left, and right in front of you is a dead-end wall. Mm -hmm. And you have to take a hard left and then go through Adventureland. And it's, you know, something we talked about, the sort of Animal Kingdom philosophy of adventure and finding your way, which I have not always agreed with. No. But, you know, you can see the root of it and that really surprised me because yeah. it's very unconventional compared to the other lands yeah i thought it was a compelling argument for joe roadie's philosophy i know i know joe <laughs> another thing i thought i'm with you joe <laughs> another thing i thought was really cool is that they uh, that was the first place that i saw that there were an extension of the main street store windows they have a Har harper golf window up above the uh the store in right. uh, Adventureland, they have a Davy Crockett one in Frontierland. So mm -hmm. they're like, it goes a little bit further than it does in the Magic Kingdom. I thought that was a really neat detail. Yes. Just something I stumbled across, had no idea about. 
we tried out the Bingle Barbecue immediately. I, I yes, thanks drink. for the recommendations. Yeah, I needed a drink, and I ended up getting a skewer, a skewer, and it was wonderful. They were quite tasty and lovely theming in the Bingle Barbecue stand. It was kind of like the uh, a more exotic equivalent of the Sunshine Tree. Yes. But uh, very nice, very nice, guys. Um, jungle Cruise, I loved it. I loved seeing the trees being bigger. It was great. We went on a night Jungle Cruise, which is... Uh, the only way I would go on Jungle Cruise. Right, right. Nighttime's better. Um, you know, it was a lot more similar than I thought it would be. It was, but it had the enhancements of a... That's true. I've, the, I keep forgetting about the, this. How could you forget the piranhas? Yeah, that... Which were... Scared the crap out of me and then made me laugh. Amazing. Yeah. Unexpected, <laughs> at the very least. But, yeah. Uh, now comes the point where all you west coasters might want to skip ahead a little bit on your podcast uh, yeah because we have to discuss the indiana jones adventure. i think we have an extreme minority opinion and i think I part of that to breaks be my fair, heart it breaks my heart to be fair we have been holding this attraction on a pedestal since it came out since you know like you said at d23 baxter said it was still his favorite attraction i've heard so many ever since we've ridden it and i'm paying attention i've seen so many people of like great prominence say that it's their favorite all-time favorite disney attraction and i think with all that build up and the fact that we had constantly held the countdown to extinction or dinosaur under the thumb of it yeah viewing countdown to extinction with sort of vague contempt or not so vague contempt uh but 15 years of like a hype for the indiana jones adventure and i was not impressed I will say the queue was amazing. The yes. queue was, uh, we will, you know, the queues in Disneyland are not as extensive as they are in Walt Disney World. They don't have the room for it. They don't need them to be inside as much. So a lot of rides, you're just going through a chain link thing, like doop to doop, and then you're on the Matterhorn all of a sudden. There's no kind of, you know, right. like a big queue like Pirates has in uh, Magic Kingdom. Indy does have that queue and really neat queue. Uh, they have the film reel and all that. Once you get on the ride, a we knew it was the same track as Countdown to Extinction, but it doesn't seem to really deliver on like a... No. Well, for all the talk of, oh, story and everything begins with story, I had no idea what was going on. It was hard to know what was going on. Uh, lots of rattling around in the dark and sort of random sort of things happening. I mean, there were some... You know, you have that big showpiece center room with the Mara head and their flames going up. That's very cool. The score, of course, is excellent. Yeah. But, and uh, there are some legitimately cool things, but a lot of, you know, the walls are painted flats. A lot of, I don't know, there's a lot of dead space, kind of like Dinosaur, where you're just sort of in the dark and there's things happening, but you don't really know what. Yeah, that main room is is obviously unbelievable. It's amazing. I feel like they did blow too much of their budget and too much of the ride path on that main room. Uh, but, you know, again, we're not big uh, believers in the story myth of, like, everything has to have a story. Obviously, Pirates, which we'll get to, doesn't really have much of a story. No. But... You do like to know what's happening. Right. And in Dinosaur, it is a very clear story where you're getting chased by the dinosaur. Here's what's going on. Almost, well, I would argue that kind of no extinction too much. Right, right. Because all you need to know is you've gone back in time and there are dinosaurs. And that's, I'm good with that. 
The climax to the Countdown to Extinction, however, is, I would argue, vastly superior in complete and utter terror and feeling like a child, <laughs> which it still scares me to this day. I agree. The indie one was first... kind of just like, I, you know, I knew, again, that the giant ball was rolling down, and I thought it would be a lot more extremely frightening and make you feel like you soiled yourself like dinosaur yeah. does to me for some reason. I, yeah, the first time I rode Countdown to Extinction, I had severe anxiety issues, but... Indy, I was mostly afraid I was going to get flung out of the car in the dark. Right. But, uh, you know, it's uh, pioneering technology. It's yeah. a great idea. It's just after hearing every, all these illustrious people say it's their favorite ride ever. Well, it's you know, suffers from that thing that a lot of modern imagineered things do where they rely too much on the technology, I think. Yeah, you know the agree. EMV system is amazing. It's great. So is the Tower of Terror. You know, the Tower of Terror is great, but... Uh, it's just like it seems to be focused on that technology, those attractions, even as immersive as they can be. Like the Q of Indy was wonderful, but right. you know, it doesn't have to just be centered around the ride vehicle. As we can see by our next stop, this was actually our next stop after the Tiki Room. The second thing we went to do was Pirates of the Caribbean. Which was, you know, you've heard me rant about it on the blog, and it's amazing. It's amazing. Yeah, we knew, again, it was better than Walt Disney World. Yeah, we we'd seen the film for that years. religiously as children. You know, we knew it was much longer, much more um, detailed. Uh, but really, until you write it, you have no clue. There's just something about it. <laughs> it's well, yeah, sort and of it's indescribably better. Right. There's something we realized about all these old Walt Disney or Walt Disney Disneyland specials, if that makes sense, from his time when he was still alive, where they are really made like a movie. So they're heavily edited. All the scenes are very carefully chosen, and you almost see every little bit of the part individually. Yeah. Well, the pirates and he kind ride, of he cheats a little too. Yeah. The pirates ride was the same way, so you don't have an exact feel for the pacing of it. I like the pacing of it so much more than the TV version. It would be kind of boring to put on TV. But going on it, it's a lot bigger than even that whole complete ride-through would show. I mean, it's got kind of the epic feel. I mean, it seems longer than Walt Disney World's Splash Mountain. It seems like about the longest ride I can think of. Yeah, because, well, it takes you through so much. There are so many different areas you're in, and you get to soak up each of them, and it it unfolds just in front of you. It doesn't push itself on you. Starting in the Blue Bayou was really amazing, and uh, seeing you know the Blue Bayou restaurant, seeing my uh, Western counterpart Beacon Joe. In, I know indoors, pirates. indoors in pirates, very was, exciting. Yeah, I was getting the vapors when I didn't see him on the railroad, but then we went in there, and I was like, "What a better home for myself!" <laughs> I know. Uh, I was always on the Bayou. Rufus was not there. No, but. yeah, guys, where's Rufus? Where's Rufus? Yeah. Well, you know, we were talking about the queues, and this is sort of the converse of the Disney World thing. Where I had no idea, I had never seen any video of the Pirates queue, so I had no idea what it was like. But there is none. There's a queue outside, you enter the door, the flume is immediately there in front of you. And there's a sort of, uh, you know, goodbye area as the boats sail by before the people disembark, which is very cool. But there's no, it's the only area in which Florida beats that ride is that wonderful winding dark queue through the fortress 
is not there at Disneyland. Which is proof, by the way, when, you know, I used to work the Magic Kingdom, there was just a big rumor. There was a rumor that that ride building that Pirates was was built for Western River Expedition, which is not true. Not true. Uh, there's also a myth that because of the building's constraints that they had to make Pirates smaller, and that's why it's smaller. That is also not true because uh, you can see how giant the queue is at Walt Disney World and kind of unnecessary. It's really cool, but you miss out on the whole intro into the show scenes, which are pretty much the same in Disneyland and Walt Disney World of the Pirate's Town, as it were. Yes. But, yeah, I mean, it was just basically built that way because Cardwalker was cheap and there was an oil crisis and they needed to build it right away. Right. Yeah, no excuses. But, you know, in the Blue Bayou, you're there in the lagoon. It's very much uh, for Disney World folks like El Rio del Tiempo, where you get on the boat you sail around, there's a restaurant to your right, and he has the little fireflies, and it's pure atmosphere, it's fantastic. And then you go around the corner, and um, it, it just the way it's structured is so perfect. It's sort of imagineering at its height, because we talked about this, you know, there's always, like there used to be in Florida, the skeleton above the drop that's giving you the warning, uh, you know, salt healed pirates, blah, blah, blah. And, but you hear him at Disneyland before you see him. <laughs> and there's a little like house off to your left. And you think that someone's like talking out of this window or this door and it kind of tricks you and he's, he's whispering. whispering. Yeah. It's really neat. It tricks you. And then you turn the corner and there's the skeleton and then you're down the waterfall. That was another kind of little child moment. It was kind of horrifying. I mean, in one of those ways, it's not like a thrill horrifying, but it's like <laughs> yeah. so much suspense building up. Well, well, it's a great it redirect. It's a great, yeah. Uh, dipsy do. Very um, neat. And really dark there. And then you go down into the, the caverns, which are, very similar to Walt Disney World on first glance, and then you round a corner, and then you're, uh, well, first of all, you go down another drop. Right. There are two drops, and then you're in the, you know, you have the caverns with all the dead skeletons, more dead skeletons. Well, yeah. obviously skeletons are dead, but uh, dead pirate skeletons around, and then you have the scenes from Florida, which are pretty much exactly the same. But the way you're set up for it and the way you wind down from it afterwards makes it just totally changes it. And there are more dead skeletons, like you said. There are more dead skeletons. <laughs> um, but then at the, at the end, we have your favorite yes. scene, possibly of any Disney attraction ever. Yeah, you round the corner from the uh, the jail scene where you know the treasure scene is in Florida, which makes a lot more sense now that they put Captain Jack Sparrow in there, I guess. Yes. But uh, you, there's this long, first of all, more space of just more anticipation of like a burning wood effect. Then you're in the middle of pirates shooting at you and at each other, and they're drunk, and they're shooting in your face, like over <laughs> and over again. Just like leaning over your ride vehicle unloading their pistol in your face. Yeah, I definitely love that scene because it made absolutely no sense. It's fun it, for the whole family. Yeah, that was one of those things that I watched on the TV show, and it was like, this makes no sense. I guess that's because it was edited in a way that makes no sense. And it makes even less sense in person, but I loved it. But it was great. Awesome. It is awesome. Yeah. I mean, it makes sense. Fantastic. They're they're trashed, and they have guns. And they have, they have guns. And what do you do but when you're trashed shoot, and have guns? But... You shoot people, tourists in the face. <laughs> Yeah, so that's pirates, and you know, and there's not enough superlative for it. I would say, unfortunately, you know, they got the Jack Sparrow editions, the Davy Jones edition, 
and it's totally superfluous there. Mm-hmm. I think it works in Florida. I think it helps in Florida, but in California, it just it's just like get out of my way. There's something right. happening. Davy Jones, shut up. Yeah, and imagining how much of a quantum leap that had to have been at the time. I mean, you've got. In 1959, you've got Matterhorn, you've got submarines, monorail, uh, mine train a little bit later or before. And that's a big step up. Then you've got the World's Fair attractions, but then you have pirates. And it's, I mean, it had to have been so much money to create, so huge. Yeah, I, mean, I, I just can't imagine what it would have been like not having been on an attraction like that. I mean, before you even have Haunted Mansion and just going into this. I don't know, Cecil B. DeMille of theme park rides. It must have been insane. This is the end of part one of our conversation about Disneyland. Please stay tuned next podcast, where our conversation resumes in New Orleans Square, following through Frontierland, Mickey's Toontown, Fantasyland, and Tomorrowland. Disneyland opened in 1955. Walt Disney dedicated his new theme park to the ideals, the dreams, and the hard facts that have created America. While the modern Disney Corporation attempts to weave its public image from a legacy of dreams and fantasy, too often have they ignored those hard facts that Walt always sought to address. In the spirit of fostering discussion and encouraging the Disney company to examine its own actions, These are Hard Facts. Good evening, Progress City and all the ships at sea. Tonight, we speak about transportation. Transportation has always been at the core of the Disney theme park experience. After all, the whole idea of a Disney theme park originated with Walt's desire for a venue with which to share his love of miniature trains. When Walt Disney World opened in 1971, the entire property was designed to center on innovative methods of transportation. The resort's iconic Mark IV monorail was featured prominently in publicity campaigns, and the new parks and resorts boasted an armada of boats, trains, trams, and people movers. Phase one of Walt Disney World was intended as just a beginning. Walt's entire purpose in the creation of this Florida property was to build his experimental prototype community of tomorrow, or Epcot. In Walt's mind, Epcot was to be a new city that would embrace the latest thought and practice in urban design. Its goal was to promote new systems and technology that could help to mitigate the problems facing major cities of the day. Then, as now, many of those problems involved transportation. 
Walt's Epcot would tackle these problems head on, adapting ideas from city planners whose model cities sought to address the urban ills of the day. Key to this strategy would be removing cars from the transportation mix. All intracity transport would be via people mover and other electric vehicles. Cars would only provide necessary upon leaving the city. After Walt's death, plans for Epcot City were abandoned, but his ethos carried over into the planning of Walt Disney World. For the resort's first 15 years, guests could easily spend an entire vacation without needing a car. Further expansion plans, such as Epcot Center or the Lake Buena Vista Village, were created with the intention of linking them into the resort's transportation system with new monorail and people mover routes. The resort, by its very design, discouraged automobile use. When Michael Eisner arrived in 1984 and began to grow the resort at an increased rate, the infrastructure did not keep up. New roads were planned and built, and old roads widened, but no new fixed rail systems were created. Instead, Disney has relied on repeated expansion of its bus fleet, which has strained logistics and guest patience as the resort has enlarged. Waits have become longer, buses more crowded, and it has become increasingly difficult to travel between two parts of property in anything less than a few hours. Many have given up hope of ever seeing new monorail track in a Disney resort, but the fact remains that every few years or so there's an internal proposal at Disney to rehabilitate its mass transit systems. We must keep pushing for these changes. There's been a lot of news lately pertaining to Disney and mass transit. After decades of haggling, Disney agreed to lend its support to a light rail system in Orlando. They've even offered to donate land for a station, which should be somewhere near the intersection of I-4 and US-192. Ironically, this is close to where the transportation hub Walt envisioned as the gateway to Walt Disney World would have been built. Plans are underway for another mass transit system in Anaheim. Discussions are ongoing for what could eventually be a new monorail line linking the Disneyland Resort area and the Convention Center to a regional transportation hub near Anaheim Sports Facilities. From here, a high-speed rail link would connect Anaheim to Las Vegas. All these developments are exciting, but Disney must take a long, hard look at the transportation needs within its own resorts. Disneyland has suffered frequent monorail service issues, while their wonderful people-mover track still sits vacant after 10 years of neglect. Walt Disney World continues to be crippled by an over-reliance on buses and a lack of well-planned new transportation systems. They've also suffered public embarrassment and tragic loss of life due to aging vehicle fleets and poor management practices. Disney has at least tried to address the management issue by promoting a former vice president of transportation maintenance to lead the department. Prior to the fall of 2009, the duties of overseeing resort transportation were the purview of the vice president in charge of the Animal Kingdom Park. There's no possible way that a single executive could appropriately oversee a 500-acre theme park and at the same time operate a 28,000-acre transportation network. Ladies and gentlemen, I put it to you that Disney needs a forward-thinking leader in charge of planning and executing a new transportation scheme for its resorts that relies on the latest thinking in urban planning and the most up-to-date technology available. It must push the boundaries of what is possible and set a new example for cities around the world. 
Only then will the parks once more live up to Walt's wishes and legacies as they once did. Good night, progress citizens, and great tomorrow. Well, that about wraps it up for us here, folks, on our first podcast. We hope you enjoyed it. I yeah. know I have. Oh, absolutely. I've learned a lot. Have you? Oh, yes. It's hard to pick my favorite part. <laughs> Season one, episode one. That's right. You can say you were here first. The podcast. That's true. You we were had... here when it when it all began. We should make t-shirts that says, I was there first, like those Dick Tracy t-shirts. Right? <laughs> <laughs> I was just thinking about that yesterday. Um yeah, you were here at the very beginning. But now it's your duty, dear listener, to spread the love, which you will do. Tell your friends. Tell your friends. How do we do that? Well, How I do they think do that? first you should get on the iTunes and write a review. Yes, and subscribe. With as many stars. Oh, well, subscribe. It'll just I'm right assuming there. that they subscribed Let's as soon so. as they saw, saw it. I hope people are tech savvy. I well. But yeah, write a write a good review today. for us. Yeah, write us a review. Then email to ten of your friends and have them email to ten of their friends and have them all send us a nickel. We're going viral. Yes, we are viral. Uh, of course you can always follow us at twitter.com slash progress city USA. Also Facebook, which uh, we really need to get up and running on that, you know, catch up on the Facebook. On Facebook, keeping up with the Joneses. And, uh, of course, always ProgressCityUSA.com. Put us in your news feed. Check regularly. And I have some good news. We're already starting working on the second one of these. We got part two of that Disneyland uh, discussion. We're gonna. I've, I've already got my song picked. I'm not going to tell you what it is. <laughs> yeah, I know. We wouldn't want to keep people waiting because I know that they're just dying to hear what we thought about the rest of Disneyland. And uh, i tell you what else. I think we're going to be opening up the mailbag next show, so you're oh, going to need to send us man. email if you want to be on the podcast. Or if you just want to talk to us, write us at podcast at progresscityusa.com. We will accept suggestions. We will accept comments. We will accept praise or insults and respond accordingly. Indeed. Well, finally, we just wanted to thank you all for listening. It's been a real pleasure doing it. We hope you do tell your friends, and we hope you... Uh, Listen again soon. We'll be back before you know it. I'll second all that and also thank everyone for reading, everyone who comments on the blog. Your comments are always uh, very valuable to me and everyone who emails, I appreciate it. So have a good night, folks, and we'll see you soon. now it's time to go. Remember, everything you've seen here in our all-electric city is really possible today. 
So if you know any cities looking for a new springtime of progress, tell them about Progress City. Thanks, Thanks for, for joining, joining us. us. ProgressCityUSA.com. We're also on Facebook and Twitter at Progress City USA. If you want to contact us, please write podcast at ProgressCityUSA.com. The Progress City Radio Hour is recorded at Harbor Ridge Studios in Chapel Hill, North Carolina, on the web at HarborRidgeStudios.com. The title theme was composed by Jeff Crawford, whose music can be found at JeffCrawfordMusic.com. Please join us again soon for another Progress City Radio Hour. They call it Progress.